Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. six chapters up into just two uh, weeks, which is near impossible uh, to do, but excited to do it, uh, excited to be here um, with you. Thank you so much for the team that just led us. Uh, if you've been with us walking along, either in person or online, or just following along on the podcast if you couldn't make it, we've been going through a series called Lest We Turn, and basically what we're doing is looking at what happens whenever uh, Israel would turn from God, and then what would happen whenever Israel would turn back to God, and just kind of seeing what are some lessons that we can learn. How did it go for Israel? How did it not go uh, for Israel? And the overarching thing that we've seen is that God, regardless of how Israel has responded, has remained faithful to them. We call that covenant faithfulness. He's been faithful to Israel regardless of how they respond. Everything we just sing about actually can be summed up here in Joshua and in Judges. And so we've been um, sitting in the book of Judges, and and what we see, and what we're going to see today specifically, is that God is sovereign, and yet he still holds humanity accountable for their actions. God is sovereign, he's completely in control, and he holds them accountable. And what we've seen Israel do, Kelly, if you could throw this up for me, we've kind of hit it every week, is we've seen Israel hit commitment and complacency and compromise. If you could throw it up for the note taker in the room or for those that are online, we see this, this trend, this life cycle throughout Joshua, throughout Judges, throughout the Bible, and really just throughout our lives, uh, if we're being honest. And so at this point, you can get rid of that, at this point in Israel's pattern, they've surpassed compromise. Uh, This is one of the darkest moments in the history of Israel. Everything is so bad that God actually has to intervene now in today's story in a way that he has not yet intervened uh, in the book of Joshua or Judges yet. And so you could say here what, what God does, or what actually happens, I should say, is God ordains Samson before conception to be Israel's savior, to be Israel's Judge. So as you heard, an angel of the Lord comes and ordains Samson before he's even conceived to be the Savior. Who does that sound like? Angel coming to barren, not a barren woman in Jesus' case, just give away the answer, but angel comes to woman and says, your son will be the what? The Savior. So before we just jump to Jesus, because it looks like a Jesus moment here, we need to camp out in Judges 13 and see what we can learn. And then I'll point you to Jesus. So I have a big idea for you, if you could put it up for me. Big idea is this. God is sovereign, and man is responsible. What I mean by that is that God is completely in control of every single aspect of all the creation, and simultaneously, humanity will be held responsible and accountable for their actions. Okay, if that makes your head hurt just a little bit, how can God be sovereign and in control and me still have some will about me, some free will about me? If that makes your head hurt, that's like the right response, okay? We, we should not, as finite people in this room, be able to fully understand an infinite God. If we could, he wouldn't be worth much worship, would he? And so God is sovereign and man is still 
responsible, fully responsible. So there's three points that I want to show you. Again, if you could throw them up for me. God's sovereignty and Samson's responsibility. We're going to talk about this. We're going to look at God's sovereignty and the church's responsibility as a whole. I'm going to offend all of you during that section. And then God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And and my hope in this last point is to lead you to actually feel uh, what Samson's family would have felt whenever this angel of the Lord comes to him. Sound good? All right, let me pray for us, and we're going to get after it. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to preach your words. It's been a month. It's a little nerve-wracking. And so, God, I pray for my own emotions, my own thoughts, anxieties. Lord, I pray that you would settle me down. I pray the same for those that are here, uh, whether they be seasoned or guests here for the first time. God, I, I pray that you just settle our anxieties together as a family. I pray, as always, that we might lose track of time. Um, and at the end of this thing, God, I just pray that we would have a big, high, beautiful picture as to who Jesus is and what he does and what it really means to be in Christ. So God, I pray all this in your name, by the gift and power of your spirit, all God's people said. Here we go. Judges chapter 13, verse 1 says this. God's sovereignty, Samson, technically Samson's family's responsibility. Verse 1, and the people of Israel again did what was what? Evil in the sight of the Lord. We've heard this numerous times now, haven't we? So the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord does what? So the Lord did what? Gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So the people are evil, and then God steps in and allows, in his sovereign control, to put the Israelites under Philistine um, slavery. And so we see this pattern continuing all throughout the book, whether it's myself or David preaching. We've seen commitment has turned to complacency, and complacency has turned to compromise. This is the seventh time in the book of Judges that the author has said Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This language will actually not be used again. Uh, and the, the reason that this happens, the reason that this is the seventh time that the author says this is because in Hebrew writing, this seven, the number seven is a number for completion. So the author, clearly being Hebrew, is saying to us, this is just where Israel was. They were evil in the sight of the Lord, doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, full-on compromise. They're not worshiping the God that we would worship called Yahweh. They're not going to the temple to worship. They're just worshiping cultural gods, little lowercase trinkets. That's what they were worshiping, giving themselves over to that. And so it says, and they did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and then they're held responsible. God gives them over. There's that tension right there of God being in control and simultaneously humanity being held responsible. Do you see that? Not easy to wrap our minds around, but do you see it? Elsewhere in this, in this series, the text has said they did what was right in their own eyes, if you've been following along, unless we turn. So here it says they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Seven times they've said that. It's just where they were. But elsewhere it said they did what was right in their own eyes. Listen here. When you do what is right in your own eyes, listen up, eye contact. When you do what is right in your own eyes, you better believe you're doing what's evil in the eyes of God. Period. There is no gray in there. And, and this is what happens. The longer we continue to walk in sin and walk in disobedience or walk against God's will, the more comfortable we get, we get. the more easier it is to compromise. The, the more um, easy it is to kind of settle into this, what once felt like sin now just feels like a Tuesday. Like it just becomes another aspect of life. 
There's no more tension. There's no more conviction. There's no more challenge from the Lord. This just is where we are, and compromise is all we know. And it, not, it doesn't just become like a lifestyle. It becomes a worldview. This is just who I am, full-on compromise. This is a good time to plug while missional community is so important because anybody can come in here, as Pastor David said last week, anybody can come in here and kind of fake the funk for an hour and 15 minutes, but walk with me for a year in gospel community and try to do it. It just ain't going to happen. Four months, you can do it, okay? You can do it. Anybody can fake the funk for four months. Four and a half months, you're getting sold out. You know what I'm saying? This is why we need to be in the context of community. Israelites, similar to us, were worshiping cultural gods to such a degree that they had fully embraced the culture around them. They just looked like the culture around them. If you remember, one of the big ideas that uh, I had for you was what one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. This is what has happened for Israel. They are fully immersed into this culture. They're not doing any of the works that God has given them. So God has taken matters into his own hands, put them under the Philistine um, slavery and rule, and then he also then simultaneously looks at them and has mercy on them. And God steps in and again in another way, and he says this, I'm going to raise up for you a rescuer. His name is going to be Samson, and he's going to be consecrated from birth to be holy and to be blameless regardless of how he responds. Check this out in verse Two, verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren. That means you cannot conceive children. You are barren and you have not born children. Listen, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Who's in control there? God is sovereign even over her womb, right? Let's camp out here for just a second. Let me get you thinking about the, the tension here in the text. What's interesting here is that in a culture that was so ridden with immorality, like they found joy in child sacrifice in this culture, for example. Uh, They loved to worship a multitude of false gods in this culture. They had a God for anything that you wanted to do and you wanted to feel okay about it, you could create a God to do that thing. But what's interesting is that to be barren as a woman during this time would, would render you an outcast even in this culture. You were still seen as an outcast. It's interesting to me that while you can be um, as inclusive as you possibly can, even the absolute most inclusive culture is still more exclusive than God the Father. Does that make sense when I say it like that? Everything was a free-for-all there. You could do anything in the world, and yet while they were fully inclusive, right, it's an open house, open resort, come do any and everything you want to do, this culture was still more exclusive than God the Father was because he's the one that chooses this barren family. This family would have had nothing Like, they would have had no retirement because they couldn't have kids to work the estate. They would have had no 401k. They had no investment. They had no privilege. They were just outcasts. They had no resources. And this culture that was so inclusive, they had effectively excluded them as the least of these, removed them from their presence. Just think about that for a minute when we think about our own culture, okay? Listen, the moment you become more inclusive than Jesus you just became more exclusive than Jesus. He's the only one that's going to be all-encompassing. When we get to this level of grace he shows us in a minute, that'll make a little bit more sense. But the moment you step away from morality and you start to define what morality is and what morality is not, there will never be equality. 
there will only be anarchy. The moment that we step in and we say, hey, we're the, we're the judge and we're the ultimate final word, the final authority on this specific thing, there will never be justice. Like, it will only be chaos. It will only be anarchy. The moment that we individually, I mean, imagine, like, our world. Individually, all of you can kind of set your own moral scale for what is good, what is right, what is just, what is unjust. And if we were to write it all out up here on the walls, we would have radically different opinions of what those things were. That's what our world and our culture looks like right now. And so God then, anyway, steps in. And he says, I'm going to do what no one else would do. Whenever the culture, while it is wildly inclusive, has excluded you, I, the sovereign God of the universe, am going to step in and I'm going to choose you. I'm going to invite you into my family. Listen, based off nothing you could have done, I'm going to invite you into my family and choose you. And you are going to have a son and this son is going to be the savior of Israel. That's unfathomable. That's great. I'm the only one. That's Okay. It's cool. It's cool. I'm going to get a recording of Paul, who's way more fun than you guys, and just play that while I get to preach this stuff. Verse 4 says this. Keep following along with me. Verse 4. Verse 4. Therefore, verse 4, therefore be thankful, or sorry, be careful. He should be thankful to you, but be careful, says the text, and drink no wine. I'm going to read all of it to the end. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite. Be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Verse 6. Then the woman came and told her husband, <laughs> who's marginally unaware, if you guys did the reading this week. A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or no strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So God appears to this family, and he says to them, From your womb, okay, prior to conception, Samson's not in utero. He's not been formed yet, right? The, they have not conceived yet. They've not been able to conceive. They are barren, and he comes, and he says, you are going to have a son. He's saying, Manoah, you've missed the mark. There's something going on there, right? I'm going to give you one more shot. You're going to be a sniper. Ping! You're going to nail it, and you're going to birth out of you, out of your wife is going to come this man who's going to be Samson, and he's, you're going to set him apart. I have set him apart, so also you're going to set this Samson apart, and he's going to take the Nazarite vow. That's why he tells mom, don't eat, don't drink, don't touch anything unclean, because in the book of Numbers, that's what you had to do as a Nazarite. He's not saying don't eat, don't drink, because it's bad to pair your wine with your steak. That's not what's happening here. Don't let the Baptist tell you that. That's not true. Okay? Jesus, when he comes back, says, I'm going to meet you with the finest of wines and the best of meats. So we know that's not what's happening here. Okay? What is happening is that God has consecrated this baby, has set him apart from the womb before he's even conceived. And in this moment, then, God is calling this family to holiness. He's calling this family away from the cultural norms where it was okay to have drunken orgies and touch dead things and have child sacrifices. He's calling them out of the culture, calling them to look different, to speak different, to think differently as God's anointed who have been set apart. And you better believe that as a church, he's calling us to do the same thing, to abstain from what looks, what makes us look so much like culture that we no longer look like Christ as those who have been set apart 
as well. Here's what I want you to hear. I had Kelly put it in the slides for me. Listen, being spiritually set apart led them to being physically set apart, not the other way around. Okay? God comes first in his sovereignty and says, here's what's going to happen. And then he says, respond to me. Okay? In the church, and we're going to get there in a second, in a second point in a moment. The church, our, one of our number one problems is that we think if we act good, we will be uh, spiritually set apart. That is not the case. You are not saved by your good works. God comes in, saves them, sets them apart in his sovereign control, must intervene um, with his people, alongside his people, and then he also, while they are redeemed in this moment, gives them responsibility to walk out godliness and holiness. So the family, right, will give birth to Samson. We're going to get there next week. This family is going to give birth to Samson. He is a complete and total flipping nightmare. Happy Mother's Day, moms, next week. It's coming. He is a nightmare, okay? <laughs> Terrible human being. And yet, yet, listen, in the midst, listen, in the midst of Samson's sin, God will see Samson as faithful. God will see Samson as holy. God will see Samson as righteous because God has set Samson apart spiritually first. Listen, regardless of how he responds. That's crazy. That is just banana sandwich crazy. That's nuts. We're going to keep getting there. I'm going to tell you how that's possible. Because you've got to be asking, how's that possible, Pastor? That I can be a total flipping nightmare and seen as holy. And we'll get there in a minute. First, let's do this. God's sovereignty and the church's responsibility. Uh, every week we do a, a worship planning meeting. It's our, our favorite meeting for the whole week. I think the worship leaders and, and pastors would agree. And in that meeting, we try to write out what is what's called the following condition focus. We, we write out what is the sin that is revealed in the text. If we don't talk about sin, then we don't have a need for Jesus. So that's why we talk about sin. That's why we do a confession of sin. And so in that, we, we talk about, so we write out FCF. What is the following condition focus? The ultimate sin revealed here in the text is that the church, God's people, we still have a problem with doing what is right in our own eyes yet then revealing we're continuing to do what is evil in the eyes of God. Uh, one of the primary sins that we have is that we, as the church, as the people of God, like to determine what sanctification is, what, what it means to look holy, what it, is what I mean by that, what it means to be holy, what it means to walk out godliness. And so the church can form our own opinions based off our own eyes and our own understanding. Listen, apart from the word of God, and then we can look at the world around us and say, you need to look like us. And if you look like us, instead of looking like God, then you'll be holy. That's actually what sanctification is. It's actually to look like me and to think like me and to speak like me and be into the same things that I'm into. And so we're going to disconnect from the word of God. We're going to disconnect from God solely. And instead, I'll be your God. And if you just follow me, then everything will go pretty well. This is what our church continues to do globally, specifically, though, in light of um, our culture here in America, we love to do what we call, uh, it's called pleading moral autonomy. And so I want to be the one that sets what is moral. I want to be the one that sets what is right, what is good. Again, apart from the word of God, I don't need the word of God. Instead, I can kind of come in and I can tell you what is morally appropriate. And then if you submit to my will and you do what is right in my eyes, well, then you'll be good. You guys still tracking with me? So you need to do what is right in my eyes, and when you don't, then you do what's evil in my eyes instead of the eyes of God. You still tracking? The problem with that 
is that whenever you say, I'll do what is right in my eyes, and you should do what is right also in my eyes, and, and the problem with determining what is good and bad is that it creates factions and division and tension and chaos. Look at me. The church in America is in shambles in many ways. It's chaotic. It's crazy looking. It's inconsistent. And so because I haven't been up here for a month, I'm going to try to offend you all equally by talking more about it, okay? Uh, there's two primary camps that exist in our culture that do this. It's the liberal church and the progressive church. Let's start with the liberal church, okay? For you conservatives, they're like, you go get them, pastor. I got some for you too in the chamber, all right? Just sit tight. I'm coming after all of you, okay? Liberal churches, what do they do? They're, they want to appeal to modern culture. Throw it up for me, Kelly. They want to appeal to modern culture. The overarching goal for the liberal church is to attract culture and avoid conflict. This would be a great time for you to take notes. If you're online, write this down. This is what the liberal church does. This is what I mean by liberal church, progressive theology. They say they want to attract culture, and in doing so, then they can avoid conflict. And then there's three gods that the liberal church will worship. If you could put those up for me. First is personal choice. Second is the rejection of absolute truth. There is no truth. There's no absolute truth. And then the third would be subject matter experts instead of the word of God. Here's what happens when these churches swing this far into full-on liberal. Uh, morality goes completely out the window because they worship moral autonomy. So morality has gone out the window. They accept all modern views of sex, of uh, identity, of relationships, and on and on and on. And the reality is they have become their own moral authority. So there's no longer any church discipline that can take place in the church. What I mean by that is that no one can any longer be held accountable because how can you hold someone accountable when everyone's allowed to do what is right in their own eyes? There is no accountability. There's no way you can hold someone accountable if everyone is right all the time. The only accountability that there could be is if the subject matter expert was to stand up and say, here's what is right. Well, according to who? According to me. So how does that work? Because now I've just set the tone for what morality is. There is no absolute truth. Absolute truth is completely rejected within these churches, which means there is no morality, there is no law, there is no accountability, there are no boundaries, there are only subject matter experts that are determining what is right and what is wrong in accordance to what they want. You still tracking? When they continue to swing this direction, and the, the goal then, listen, is not worship. The goal is not Jesus. The goal is not Presenting the bride of Christ spotless and blameless before the rest of creation. The, the goal is not sanctification or growing into the image of who Jesus is and looking more and more and more like Jesus. Rather, the goal is if we could just attract culture, then we could avoid conflict, all the while worshiping comfort. I just want to feel comfortable, and then you should feel comfortable as well. If you do that, that is good, is what they would say. What are they saying? Just do what is right in our eyes. What does that mean? Anything you want. It's all-inclusive, baby. It's an all-inclusive resort. Every single person is welcome, and you can bring any ideology you want. That's called chaos. That's anarchy. Likewise, for you conservatives in the room, for the conservative that's saying in their hearts, oh, man, yeah, finally, I've been waiting. Yeah, I got something. Okay, here you go. Conservative church does this. Their primary goal is to reject modern culture. Let's reject modern culture, the overarching goal, reject culture, and if you reject culture, then you can remove conflict. 
And so instead of attracting culture, they say, no, 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 we want to be separatists, and we're going to reject the culture instead. And there's these three gods that the conservative church worships, which is this, the past. And if we could just get back the way it once was. Traditional family or the nuclear family. Make it idolize family. And one's own race and tradition. Think like us, be like us, speak like us. It's exactly what we do. The, the problem with these three idols is this little thing that we find in the Bible called the Great Commission, where you have to go make disciples of the nations, of the ethne, of the people that think differently than you and speak differently than you and look differently than you. The problem with it is a radical call to evangelism. <laughs> does not afford us the opportunity to just bunker down. So the conservative church um, is saying the same thing. They're saying what? Do what's right in our eyes. No, 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 no. Do what's right in our eyes. Not those guys reject everything that they're about. Instead, just do what is good, what is right here. And the reality is that we can place such value on the past that we fail to see what God is doing right now. Like we become pessimistic about mission instead of optimistic about mission. And in the growth and the birth of the church and new areas and new locations and church planting begins to cease and the church begins to die off because it's no longer looking outside of her walls, but rather just looking at themselves over and over and over again. They begin to primarily focus on what happens inside of a room like this. And they take this stance where they're saying, just do what is right in our eyes and then remove everyone else. So if we can um, reject all of culture, then we can also remove conflict from our midst. And we just begin to look like one another. They can protect the family unit to such a degree that they alienate the very people that exist in the room with them. Like can put family on such a high pedestal that our singles don't even fit in anymore. Single moms don't fit anymore because all we do is talk about family. Single dads that are just trying to make it out of the doggone house with shoes on their kids' feet don't fit in anymore. Because they don't get talked about. They don't get pastored. They don't get discipled. Because we put family in a way up on a pedestal that is idolatrous, to idolize family, listen, is dangerous and is damning for your children. It puts a weight on kids that you, that they will never be able to bear. And then it alienates others in the process. To push it further then, what is that doing? We're worshiping. We can worship our own cultural traditions. You need to look like me, think like me, be like me. That's called ethnocentricity. Whenever you call everyone to just be like you, that's ethnocentricity. It's dangerous. That's why churches are dying. Do you know 11 churches have closed since we started this one? Total, since we started the two and merged, 11 years, seven years, 11 churches have closed in Collinsville alone. That's, that's a staggering statistic, church. That's staggering. So to push it further, right, we can worship these cultural traditions and we just force people to look like us. And what's interesting, and here's a perfect example of it. I'll mention things like this. And I'll have someone come up to me and say, hey, Corey, you really shouldn't talk about politics from the stage. I've not mentioned politics once. I'm just talking about culture. That's an ethnocentristic way of looking at this sermon and being like, oh, yeah, he's just getting into politics. No, I'm not. I'm just talking about culture, but thank you for revealing, me, revealing to me your idol and proving my point. Right? Don't mix politics and religion. Why? Because you're doing such a good job of applying the gospel to your politics? Okay. When we stop, listen, when we stop talking about culture, listen, when we stop talking about culture, when we get scared of talking about LGBTQ, when we get scared of race and ethnicity, and we get scared of what's happening, like prop in culture proper, just on the news everywhere, we further alienate and isolate ourselves, and we put on these rose-colored glasses where we act like everything's going okay. But when you look around, everyone just still looks the same. 
And there is no mission, there's no evangelism, there's no drive, there's no optimism. All there is is death. A church that is dying and decaying, that's all that comes. So you have these two camps for now, these two camps that exist, this liberal church that says do what's right in our eyes and all we need to do is attract culture and we can avoid conflict. Then you got the conservative church like, no, 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 do what's right in our eyes and if you reject culture, then you can reject conflict, just do what's right in our own eyes. And you have God the Father and his sovereignty standing over both and saying this, you're both evil in my eyes. It's interesting about idolatry because it presents itself so good, so godly. And yet when you do something in a, that is a way that is worshiping it, it is idolatry. Listen, here's this. Both of these camps are right to an extent. And then they become very, very, very wrong. And it becomes idolatry. Evil in the eyes of God, that is the tension. There's a tension that we have to walk out so that we don't say, hey, do what's right in our eyes, but rather we say, no, 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 let's just try to do what's right in the eyes of God, and we'll let him sift the rest of it out in his sovereignty. Let's be obedient. Let's walk out the will of God. Both camps, camps are ultimately claiming, claiming, both camps are ultimately claiming sovereignty while removing responsibility. The liberal camp is saying, we don't need the word of God. We have subject matter experts. The conservative camp is saying, we don't need mission. We have ourselves. Both are wrong. You still with me? So then what do we do? What do we do? Last point, God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Hopefully we have time to land this plane. God's sovereignty, our responsibility. The reality is this. We're wired for religion. Like we love self-righteousness. We love to feel morally good, morally right, morally proud. That's what we are wired for. And we believe at the core of our beings that if we're physically good, then God must be good. If we're physically good, then we must be good. But the Bible says something different. It says you're actually born into sin as sinners. You're born dead. You're born separate from God. You're born not good. <laughs> you're the, the opposite of good, bad, born evil. And God has to step in then and clean you up apart from your good works. He steps in and cleans you up. And so what I want to do is I want to lay this out for you from Ephesians 1 and then we'll be done. And, and I've been praying this week that as I do this, man, that you would actually resonate with the family of Samson. Not that you know them, not that you're best friends with them, but as, we, as I talked with you about what Ephesians 1 says about the Christian being seen as holy and blameless, that the Holy Spirit would ignite in you the same excitement that the family of Samson felt whenever he was called before he was even consecrated. That's a big prayer. Let's see if the Holy Spirit will do it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6, to sum it all up for you, our responsibility here. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with what? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4 now. Even as he did what? Chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Does that sound like postpartum or preconception? Before he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? Say it. Holy and blameless before him. That we should be what? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Based off your good works? Based off your awesomeness? Based off how godly you are? How much Bible you read this week? How much time you spent in prayer in your little prayer closet you created? Okay, just checking. In love, in love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as 
sons, just as he did Samson in that family, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of our will, according to the purpose of who? His will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we've got to talk about this the last three weeks. Anytime I have to preach or teach on something for three weeks in a row, that means God's telling us something, okay? Here's what this says. Um, Just as God came to Samson's parents and said, you are holy in your mind, so also that is what God has done to you who are in Christ. Not by anything that you've done. He just came to you and said this to you. So just as it's true for them, so also it is true for you in Christ. And Ephesians says here, long before God ever cracked the skies, that God came before he separated the masses. Just think about this for a second. Before God did anything, he looked out across time and space and he just saw you. Like saw you for all that you are, saw you for all that you're not. He saw you in your brokenness, saw you in your facade, saw you with your Instagram filter, saw you trying to get the right light, saw you trying to create in, like this image that is fleeting and failing. Like God looked out and saw you at your absolute best, saw you at your absolute worst, saw you trying to be hyper impressive for everyone around you, saw you in all your sin and saw you whenever you were at your best. And he said, all of that is filthy rags. I'm going to make you holy and blameless. Like, setting this for just a minute, whenever you think about failure, when you think about, like, not being able to measure up as a parent when you're having a terrible time as a spouse or as a couple, whenever you feel like you just can't measure up, when you're feeling defeat, when you're feeling depressed, anxiety, frustration, when you're feeling uh, cravings for whatever it may be, like, the father looks at you and says, holy and blameless, even in that moment. Whenever you over-discipline your kids, whenever you yell at your spouse, whenever you act completely unpredictable for everyone around you, God looks at you and says, I knew that was coming. Holy and blameless, like set apart in perfection, not by anything that you could ever do. Jesus, think about this, Jesus is standing there next to his dad, okay? And the father's looking at us, just as the father would have looked at that family and known that Samson was coming, and the father looks at us and sees us in our mess as his kids. And and listen, at some point, he has to look over to his son, and he says, hey, son, why don't you come over here and stand between us? so that I can look at them with the right eyes. And in that moment, like the Jesus steps in between us, the Father looks at us through the Son and says, hey, I'm going to look at them with every bit of perfection that you have before me right now. I'm going to look at them with that. And every bit of spiritual blessing I could have ever given you, I'm going to give it to them. And you know what? It's going to kill you. You're the perfect judge. You're sovereign in every way. I'm going to send you down, and the very ones that you come to save are going to judge you. They're going to beat you, they're going to kill you, they're going to hate you. And while you have all authority in heaven and earth placed upon your name, you're just going to let it happen. Because I want to be able to look at them the same way that I look at you. Holy and blameless. And then Jesus does it, dude, he does it. He comes and he walks in perfection, modeling what it looks like to be perfectly holy and blameless. He goes to the cross, completely innocent, beaten in our place as our substitute, dead, rises to new life, resurrects to whole new life, sends us his spirit. Why? So that the Father can look at us as if we were actually holy and blameless, even though we're not. Will we continue to sin? Yeah, absolutely. We're a mess, just like Samson. And at the same time, God looked out and saw you jacked up as you are and said, you're mine just as he does Samson and that family. 
right? That's called the doctrine of sanctification. It's positional sanctification. You don't have to put it up, but it's called positional sanctification. Before we could ever do anything good in the world, before God ever cracked the skies, he looked out and he saw us. And he only can do that because he sees Jesus standing in our place. Tell me one person in culture who's that inclusive. I tell you what, you show me one person in, close, in, in, in our culture that's that, inclu- that radically inclusive, that reveals that level of grace and mercy, and I'll walk away from all of this right now. I'll, leave, I'll set it all down and I'll follow them. Because there's no one that I know in our culture that tries to proclaim to be so inclusive that is that inclusive in our cancel culture. All that cancel culture does is reveal how merciless our culture is, not how merciful And so we have this merciful God that comes and stands in our place as our substitute, allowing us to judge him as the perfect judge. Jesus is the better Samson in every single way. God will use Samson's death to liberate the Israelites from Philistine slavery for a moment, and then they're going to go back into slavery. But tell you what, God sends Jesus, the perfect son, as the perfect judge, to use his death to liberate us from freedom to slavery to sin for eternity. That's the gospel. That's what we get to believe, and that's what we get to worship. Stand with me as we um, transition here to a time of communion and reflection. It says this, 1 Corinthians says this. If you are not able to grab a communion cup, feel free to make your way up to the baskets. There are communion cups in the baskets. 1 Corinthians says this, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night whenever he was betrayed... He took bread, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So for those of you that are in Christ, this is a meal that is for you. Um, For those that have professed faith in Jesus, um, for those that are submitting to him, Uh, For those who are failing at submitting to him and yet still seen as holy and blameless, even in the midst of your sin, it's a meal for you. Uh, For those of you that are Christians, the way that we respond to God's sovereignty is very simple. Uh, We simply receive, we believe, and we celebrate the gospel. Just celebrate the mess out of it. Uh, For those of you in the room that are not yet Christians, uh, we pray that maybe today would be the day. That as we talk about Jesus and his sovereignty and how he looks at you and how he sees you as perfect and holy in the midst of your depravity, that you would actually look upon Jesus and say, wow, I've never actually thought about you like that. How can you see me like that? How is that possible? And then you would see his death and you would see his resurrection and it would actually ignite something in you that would lead you to faith. So if you're not professed faith in this Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity as a non-believer to do so, to profess faith in this sort of radical love that is given through Christ alone. Uh, Feel free to take communion when you're ready. Ladies and Jeff will lead us out.